Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. At IKEA, your dream home is a blue bag away. No matter the size of your space or budget, we've got everything you need to turn your dreams into reality. And now with new lower prices on hundreds of our most popular products, bringing the dream home is even easier. Like the Gray Strandom Wing Chair, was $369, now $299. And the IKEA Plus 365 9-piece cookware set was $129.99, now $89.99. And hundreds more. Shop new lower prices at ikea-usa.com today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, welcome to IKEA, where even this desk is circular. Huh, how so? Looks pretty rectangular to me. It's because we're always looking to repair, reuse, and we love our products, like buying back your IKEA items for store credit. Or shop our as-is section for great deals. You can even order free spare parts. Get on the circular path for a more sustainable future. Still a rectangle. Get started at ikea-usa.com slash circular. Visit ikea-usa.com slash circular for as-is information and buyback and resale terms and conditions. Spare parts not available for all products. No matter what you're looking for in a non-alcoholic beer, there's only one name that has it all. Athletic Brewing Co. Full flavor? It's athletic. Huge variety? It's athletic. Award-winning styles you can get online, at the bar, or the grocery store? It's athletic. In fact, when it comes to amazing non-alcoholic beer, there's no question. It's athletic. Ask for it and find out. Go to askforathletic.com to find your closest retailer today. Near beer. We Have Ways of Making You Talk presents One Man's Window, an illustrated account of 10 weeks of war, Malta, April 13th to June 21st, 1942, by Dennis Barnum. Chapter 17. A New Home. I am at peace. In pyjamas with a rug wrapped about me, I am sitting on the balcony outside my bedroom, looking out over the moonlit garden and listening to the occasional 88s diving at Takali with screaming engines, to the deep-throated explosions, to the echoes fading amongst the hills, to the mysterious silence that re-envelops the island. It is 24 hours since I lifted my service revolver. During today, Wednesday, May the 27th, the bombing has gone on, the pain of the dog wrenching my stomach has gone on, and I have fought with 109s in the sky. When orders came through for the squadron to stand down for the night, the CO arrived with an unusual invitation. 
merrymaking in the nightclubs of Valletta. Having so often been accused of taking life too seriously, I decided to go. The three of us, the CO, Pancho and myself, looked out through the windows as we drove through moonlit Valletta, heaps of black rubble, shells of buildings shining with silvery-blue light against the sky, baroque facades of palaces, eerie and deserted. We found a sentry near the partly broken palace of the old masters, and he promised to look after the car. The first club was shut. We tried another. Its heavy door was solidly unyielding. The merrymakers were probably in the cellars, for an enemy bomber throbbed its um 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 uh, above us in the night. We walked towards the Mayfair Hotel, hoping it would be open for a few preliminary drinks. There was a swish rush of air. We crouched down beside some wreckage, a brilliant flash. The bombs crashed with prolonged avalanche in the next street. Finally, we entered a small clubroom of canned jazz. Instead of blue moonlit gentleness, lamps and orange candle flames danced their fumes to the blackened ceiling. Here were smells of burnt paraffin, cheap wine, plump legs and sweat. I immediately started a drawing of a woman seated among the tapering bottles that gleamed with highlights on the bar counter. Her dress was the colour of red wine. Her skirts were lifted high on her lap, making an oval frame from which the whole length of her stockinged legs swayed out into the room. As I started my drawing, she was leaning back on her straight slender arms, tossing her head with laughter, but I had to change it, because a tall flight lieutenant wandering across stood beside her. Her old face stared into his young one, while he, looking down, patted her knees. If you want a good subject, chuckled the civilian leaning forward from the next table, wait until she dances. She doesn't wear anything under that dress. Soon after, in a flurry of red skirts, the woman bore down upon us, settling on the CO's lap like a broody hen. He had hardly overcome his astonishment before she was off again, linking arms with the delighted wing commander who had just come in. We learned that she was a scalp hunter, boasting to have slept with three flight lieutenants, four squadron leaders, two wing commanders and a group captain during the last week. When the poor light from the fluttering candles had made my eyes ache, when I had exhausted myself by drawing, when I felt like a limp rag on the rest of the party, I came home. I enjoyed the solitude of the drive along the moonlit roads, with the lazy murmuring of the enemy bombers patrolling overhead, and now I am here, alone on the balcony. There is a delicious smell of the earth replenishing itself in the garden below. I too am trying to replenish myself, trying to understand the facts of my own nature, how it can be related to Malta and to war. Last night, utter despair made my finger curl round the trigger, but even as I stared into my revolver's muzzle, wondering about the best way to do it, I realised that other imaginative pictures existed in my mind. Lowering my revolver, I started to think. I was imagining how the shot would sound from a distance, how the CO and all the pilots would come running in to find my lifeless body with my brains blown out. That will make them realise how much I have suffered, some childish part of my nature was telling me. Whatever events of hate, killing, strain, illness, separation and hopeless loneliness had led to my despair, I suddenly knew I was acutely sorry for my miserable self, that I was craving some understanding of some kind from somebody, that if I could not have it in life, then I would have it directed towards me in death. With stark clarity, I understood that despair is essentially selfish. The fact that a thoughtless whirlpool of selfish emotion had brought me to the brink of suicide overwhelmed me with horror. I suddenly realised that the inner essence going on after death would have been held accountable for throwing my life away, that I would have appeared before the inner judge of all things as a small boy who had broken a very precious gift, broken it in a fit of temper, a fit of the sulks, smashed it because he was not living in the kind of world he wanted to live in. I have resented the world for the last five or six weeks, and because of my resentment I have been banged about by it. I suppose everyone, sooner or later, has quite deliberately to relate himself to his environment. I can either pit myself against this world at war, 
but such action has led to despair, or I can conform to its character, but I reject this also, for by hating, by doing things I do not believe in, I would be giving up ideals that I know to be good. What then is the answer? Is there a third course open to a man in this predicament? Sitting here I feel that I should not expect so much from the world. Obviously a belief in God, a belief in peace and love by which to try and lead one's life are not enough. For sanity one must understand the world too. How simple the answer seems, just not to expect so much of the world. And I have been terribly selfish. How strangely wonderful it is to learn the bitter truth about one's tent of selfishness, to be humiliated by one's weaknesses, and yet to feel that each one of us is sought out by a power, a purity, and an overwhelmingly great love that is far beyond our highest conceptions. To know that finally, when all human weaknesses are purged away, spiritual union with God is the ultimate destiny of all men. A week ago, an English lady from Sliema, who was expecting a child and who has been trying to get away from the island, at last took her seat in a transport plane during the night bombing at Lucca. Her flight to Egypt had considerable significance for us, for she had told the CO that once she was safely in Egypt, we could take over her house as a new mess. A fuel pipe in one of the engines of her plane must have been fractured by a bomb splinter, for the plane hadn't flown much more than 30 miles out to sea before it caught fire, a rosy torch in the darkness, but it managed to stagger back and land safely. A few nights ago, the CO arranged another seat for her second attempt. She has arrived safely. We have moved from Naxar, and I am alone in the sitting room of her house. The other pilots are out on the flat roof watching the enemy planes. From the roar of engines, there seem to be several waves of bombers. What a din! I can imagine what her life has been like, for an anti-aircraft gun sighted only a few hundred yards away is adding its periodical explosions to the crash of falling bombs. The walls shake and my eyes seem to dance in my head. Settling back into the comfortable depths of her armchair, it is with warm happiness that I look around the room. This is luxury. The walls are a soft eggshell blue. A gentle light filters through the window opposite. The carpet, which practically fills the stone floor, is rose madder in colour, spattered at the moment with lumps of white plaster that are shaking off the ceiling. I hope the other armchairs, the settee against the left-hand wall and the triangular divan that fills the far left-hand corner are not going to get engrimed with dirt like the Naxar furniture. It is unlikely the Maltese women servants who work for the Sliema lady are continuing to work for us. It is the feminine touch that makes this house so pleasant to live in. There are flowers arranged in a glazed earthenware pot on the walnut writing desk to the right of the window, while the fireplace on the right-hand wall, lavishly equipped with a polished brass fender, is crowded with lavender-coloured blooms picked from the sunken-walled garden. I have my diary on my knee and I stare down at the brief entry I've just made for this morning. Thursday, June the 4th. At dawn, searched for the crew of a lost Wellington bomber, banks of mist over the cliffs, the sun rose from the sea, all the moving water shone into green. We searched for an hour and a half, no trace of them. There's a similar entry for yesterday. Wednesday, June the 3rd, squadron searched for Spitfire survivors. Twelve Spitfires, flying to us from the aircraft carrier Eagle, were intercepted by 109s from Pantellaria. Four shot down. The only trace of our lost pilots, an empty yellow dinghy on the waves. Heavy price for eight Spitfires that did reach us. Vital reinforcements. Rumours that our long-promised convoy is about to sail. Earlier diary entries for Tuesday and Monday last show how our battle progresses. The usual successes and occasional losses. It's always the new boys that go. Two of them recently. One through inexperience, but the other, who held great promise as a fighter pilot, was stupid. He wanted to be the great individualist. He would break away from the formation to go hunting alone, although warned. That was the end of him. I look up from my armchair, for the air raid seems to be over. The pilots are coming in again. In the centre of the rose matter carpet stand the dreaded Hugh and the handsome Sergeant Johns, his hair meticulously brushed. 
Both are about to go out to dinner with the daughter of a senior army officer that they've recently met. Johns is claiming that he can get any woman he wishes for, but I can't help smiling at him. How do you do it, Bill? Line up Brigadier's daughters and things. Well, says Johns, during last night's moonlight bathe with the girl, I just fell on my feet. Yes, he continues, relishing the memory. Her body's all right, but she's not got much of a face. What would you do if you met someone prettier? Just leave the Briggs daughter to old Hugh here. Well, cheery old chaps, we're off. We'll bring you back a hair of the dog. I listen to the clip-clop of a horse and the Gary Bells passing beneath the window and I look across the walnut desk with flowers on it. Cyril sitting in the far corner of the room, oblivious to the banter. It's all very harmless, this banter. How stupid I've been to worry about it. I suppose the ancient Greek cities with their magnificent architecture, with their marble columns and caryatids white in the sunlight, were filled with people laughing and cursing and joking. I've been stupid to have imagined otherwise. There is a classical feeling about Sliema. Indeed, my diary entry for the last Saturday, May the 30th, records my first impression as we arrived here. Our new mess is on a high promontory, waves surging against the rocks. Looks like Greece. And for that same evening, I wrote, Baron Sklikluna invited us all to a cocktail party. His Dragonoia Palace is built out into the sea on a neighbouring headland. At the Baron's party, between the heads of his many guests, I noticed a girl in a white dress. I watched her proud little head that hardly moved as she talked. I watched her slim figure with her young breasts beneath the white material and her beautifully moulded arms and legs. She looked Greek. I got out my sketchbook and, edging a little closer, started to draw. I suppose I'm a romantic idealist, a crazy dreamer, expecting her to be some kind of goddess. It was stupid of me, but so overwhelmed was I by sadness at her trite conversation that I left the party and walked back alone by the sea. It was just the same after I had left, for as I walked I met an English civilian with his wife and their young daughter aged six or seven. I talked with him for several minutes. The child had a streaming cold with mucus running all over her upper lip. The wife flirted in glances with soldiers passing to and fro along the road, while the man cursed the island, cursed the war and cursed the Germans. Beyond the man's head, on the opposite shores of the narrow bay, the walls of this new home of ours, and of other flat-roofed houses high above the rocky boulders, were exquisite shades of grey gold, dark against the cool evening sky, gold that reflected steeply down into the lapping blue water. Continuing in my walk, I seemed to be possessed by the spirit of beauty that hovered about the bay. I started thinking of the ancient animistic religions in Greece and how people once worshipped the spirits that lurked in a grove of oak trees or dwelt invisibly in parched valleys of rocks. I thought of the girl in white and I longed to meet someone who also felt the charm of the evening. Sliema is a beautiful place, but last Friday evening, our last evening at Naxar, was a noble farewell to the old life. I was writing to Diana, a hot-tempered letter demanding news, but I was so ashamed that I tore it up. How difficult it is to live up to one's ideals in everyday life. Suddenly I was aware of the sky. Leaving my writing things in the place, I wandered out onto the familiar hillside. The sun, sinking in splendour behind the church, turned the square buildings and all the rooftop balustrades into a dark silhouette against golden cloud. Looking eastwards, I watched the shadows creep over the inland landscape over the terraced fields that led downwards layer by layer into the wide central valley. I watched white cities brilliant in the distance engulfed by shadow and lost against the purple hills. As the island darkened, some horizontal bands of clouds still lit by the sun were laid across the sky a pink carpet for the pale moon. Then they were deserted by the light becoming dark ribbons. A cold wind began to blow. The bright bowl of light that lingered in the west was perceptibly fading, but in the darkness luminous colours began to shine. In the first field below me, the cut vegetation was a rich brown. The pale walls were a soft yellow-grey. The goats that clambered through the openings of crumbled stone were vivid with browns and reds. 
The stunted trees, normally so dry and arid by daylight, were a deep olive green. From among the trees, a procession of people emerged, probably labouring people returning from their work in the fields, although some of them may have been strolling over from a neighbouring town for the sheer joy of walking in the evening air. As they approached and filed past me, their predominantly dusty clothes were full of colour, soft blues, madder pinks, saffrons, all of overwhelming subtlety against their dark tanned faces and arms. They came silently, most of them treading the path with bare feet. First came a woman with a bundle on her head, walking erect, then two people together, a middle-aged man in the palest of blue trousers with a brown black waistcoat and cap, accompanied by a woman wrapped in a heavy black cloak and muttering her prayers. There were some long gaps in the erratic procession. From time to time, a few young couples wandered past more slowly. The men were handsome and their smartly dressed girl companions were beautiful to look at. There were occasional children and all the while the sky darkened and the moon grew more brightly silver. One of the children approached me. Johnny, give me a penny. Go away. I did not mean to be unkind, but I wanted to watch without having hands tugging at my sleeves. All too soon I stood on the hillside alone. The moon, faintly encircled by a halo of rusty light, was mounting steadily higher, the proud equal of the fading light in the west. The sky was much darker, no longer a royal blue but a quiet grey, while the moving clouds, which had hitherto been black, now started to shine with silver. Anxious lest all the previous miracles of colour had faded, I looked down at the dark ground, but a new kind of miracle was taking place. The walls and fields were luminous with moonlit colours. The moon had become the undisputed queen of the night. The halo which encircled her silver coin had increased to a brilliant shining bronze. I had started walking slowly past a cornfield of wavering phosphorus yellow towards the summit of a hill when a figure emerging from the shadows approached along the path. He was perhaps a peasant returning from his work much later than the others. Quite alone, we drew nearer one another. We must both have been aware of the wonder of this particular evening, for as we closed and faced each other, bereft of communication by the barrier of language, we lifted our right arms and placed our hands firmly on each other's shoulders. We stood like that for a minute of silence, perhaps longer, an eternal moment before continuing our separate ways. As I walked on, tears were brimming into my eyes. Later, as I was returning, the sirens started to wail their opposing melodies of frightfulness. The moon was shining down through a layer of haze so that the light that cast black shadows under the walls was pale red like diluted blood as it fell upon the fields. With the enemy bombers throbbing overhead, I noticed that against the dark olive trees there was a girl in a white dress. She was walking slowly this side of the darkest shadows with the moonlight shining full upon her young figure. I felt a peculiar need of someone feminine to share all the beauty with. Not having heard from Diana, I stared across the field at the strange young girl. But remembering Diana, I walked on alone, listening to the crash of the bombs and to the orchestra of crickets in the surrounding grass. As a plant-based cheese company, Dea has never talked about beef in an ad before because someone somewhere once had a beef with saying beef and plant-based together. So putting a slice of Dea cheese on a beef burger, not okay. Well, our delicious melty cheese has a beef with your beef about beef, because any step towards plant-forward eating is a step in the right direction. Dea, 100% plant-based, even if you're not. Now made with Dea Oat Cream Blend. Friday, June the 5th. I think I've adjusted myself to life here. I'm still assaulted by terror when I have to fly and fight. I still long for Diana's letters to start arriving, but I have settled down. I bless the Sliema lady for letting us have her beautiful house. I couldn't believe that a simple carpet on the floor could mean so much. 
Last night, another seal was set on my new life, for it was my turn to have a hot bath. The first chance since leaving the aircraft carrier last April. I was apprehensive that the bombs which were falling might knock the wall down to leave me suspended and expose in midair, but I sang for joy as I scrubbed and splashed in a foam of soap. Afterwards, I settled in a deck chair on the flat roof at the back of the house. I watched a tender veil of grey being drawn over the sky, while lazy-looking clouds coming in from the north grew larger into great blocks of cumulus, taller and taller until their tips merged with the veil above them. This morning before dawn, we climbed into the bus to be taken to the aerodrome. It was inky dark, and the airman driver, with his usual recklessness, accelerated down the hill towards Valletta. At the bend at the bottom, the bus, skidding violently, plunged into a tree. None of us were really hurt. Scrambling to my feet, I looked out. For a brief moment in the blackness, the hilltop was silhouetted against the pale flank of a huge cloud, a moonlit cloud passing slowly behind the houses. A reflection gleamed in the road. It had been raining for the first time since April. The driver scratched his head, restarted the engine, and let in the clutch with care. Looking back as we topped the hill on the outskirts of Valletta, I saw a jagged stream of lightning slither silently down the sky, disappearing behind another monstrous cloud that was following us. The bus plunged on in the darkness, Moving to the front seat, with the warm, damp, earth-smelling air blustering merrily into my face, I watched the blurred road slide under the bonnet. I stared intently, searching for any, especially dark patches, that might mean new bomb holes, or that the earth and rubble fillings had been washed out of the old ones by the rain. We swerved past some of these holes, dropping into others, lurched through narrow funnels between stacks of wreckage, and finally, with a clatter of pistons, climbed the last hill and stopped on the plateau of the aerodrome. Then the deluge began. G-Shelter, which had been a ghostly black shape, barely 20 yards away, was obliterated by the rain. Rain plummeted into the ground, turning the mud into torrents. Spray drifted through the windows, filling the air. In an effort to keep our parachutes dry, we took them off the seats, stacked them in the gangway, then sat on them. The downpour continued, so I waded to G-Shelter, climbed down the waterfall steps to the lighted cavern to report that conditions were quite hopeless for flying. With permission, we splashed our way over to the mess, But we had to laugh. The carpet was soggy and the newspapers had been turned to pulp. The walls of the mess had been eased outwards by repeated bomb blast. The roof no longer fitted. Water was cascading in. Later, after breakfast, the storm having subsided, I was standing beside my Spitfire watching the fantastic panorama of daylight cloud when an astonishing thing happened. Woody, calling me on the field telephone in a new tent that has been erected at our dispersal point, said that as no enemy aircraft was stirring from Sicily, I could take up three new boy pilots for a practice flight. A practice flight? I'd never heard of such a thing. We were soon in the air, sweeping amongst avenues of vapour, diving through tunnels that closed over our heads, glimpsing down at the yellow hills laid out between rolling white cloud tops and through other gaps at the grey sea. I did normal turns and steeper turns, diving and climbing turns, abrupt changes of direction, but the new boys had no idea of the standard of flying required. Even restricting myself to gentle manoeuvres, it seemed quite beyond their power to stay in position. I had been cursing my number two, who was persistently 600 yards behind me, when Woody called. Hello, Dennis. Got some trade for you. Eight 109s, four miles southeast of Califrana, coming north. We were at 10,000 feet over the harbour, above a faint layer of cloud that looked as if someone had breathed out deeply in front of my windscreen, the breath having smeared horizontally between two towering storm pinnacles. But I could not manoeuvre. I had to fly slowly to persuade my flock to join formation. I knew that the enemy fighters would not do gentle circles if we were surprised. Little job's approaching you now. Keep up, Yellow Four, I called desperately as I watched the corner of a steep edifice of creamy vapour swinging nearer and nearer towards us. The 109s might be behind it. We might surprise them. They might surprise us. 
109's diving out to sea on the deck. Victor zero, three zero, said Woody's voice. Anticlimax. But it suddenly struck me that perhaps the German formation were new boys too. We dived in pursuit, plunging in and out of cloud through shafts of sunlight and volumes of cool shadow until we reached the wave tops halfway to Sicily. No sign of the enemy, but we were confronted by a magnificent raging storm that lifted its peak to tens of thousands of feet above us. It laid a curtain of rain low into the water beyond our wingtips. A superb storm. We were patrolling on the flank of this monster, which seemed to be scornful of our puny aeroplanes, when I realised with alarm that it was swallowing our island. I sent the three new boys into land, then swept in quickly onto the runway behind them. We were hardly out of our cockpits and into shelter when great black clouds rolling overhead darkened the sky. As the rain roared onto the tarpaulin, I watched the retreating gleam of light beyond the far side of the aerodrome. It was quickly snuffed out by the wall of falling water. I watched a lake spread round the wheels of my Spitfire, and three airmen, who had been sheltering under the Spitfire's wings, raced towards us for cover. They came in panting with heavy blocks of red mud clinging to their boots. The smell of the earth and the reviving life was wonderful. The tarpaulin above us sagged ominously, full-blown with water. The air grew darker still. Above the roar of the rain, the sirens started to wail, a muffled screaming and moaning. A sheet of lightning lit the sky, disappearing in a glaring white bolt behind the silhouetted lookout tower. At the same instant, a crash of thunder split our heads as loud as any bomb, split and left our heads ringing. As the thunder and masses of cloud rolled away towards the south, the storm abated to a moody downpour. Within a few minutes, the sky above us was revealed, washed clean, a dazzling white prelude to oncoming blue. The rain spattered erratically, then stopped. The airmen, stepping out into the sunlight with dark patches of dampness drying slowly on their khaki uniforms, cursed the rain and cursed the mud. I pointed out how the sky had been cleansed, how the drab dust had been washed from the ruins of Luka village making them glitter, how the earth and the surrounding fields was a matte crimson and the broken wheat a pearl yellow against lucid grey skies. The airmen went happily back to work carrying silver cans to refuel the Spitfires. They told me they'd never noticed colour before. It's happened. It's happened. Saturday, June the 6th, a date I'll remember. It happened just a few minutes ago. My sections at 15 minutes availability. It was by sheer chance that I wandered down to the mess. Not only a cable from Diana, but a whole batch of letters as well. I can't describe the happiness that overwhelms me. I seem to be bursting with strength. The golden aerodromes flooded with glory. The delayed action bombs that are going off, sending their perpendicular black clouds bubbling with gaiety high into the blue. There goes one near the lookout tower, a perfect smoke ring. I'm sitting on a rock 50 yards short of the Spitfires and I've read each of the letters through several times already. I've checked the postmarks and find that Diana has written regularly ever since the night I left England. I can't understand why I haven't received these letters before. Perhaps some army or RAF clerk has been letting them accumulate in his office. Criminal thoughtlessness, but I forgive him. No bitterness now that I'm swallowed up in joy. I've written, not only to Diana today, but pages and pages to almost everyone I know. Strange letters, properly, for I was banged about by pressure waves from the exploding bombs. My head ached with noise. After each unheralded crash, it took about 30 seconds for my pounding heart to resettle. At lunchtime, I was airborne, despite a bit of trouble with my left wingtip. But by tea, I'd completed six letters of fantastic length, all posted now, going off by tonight's mail plane. I've been dancing, not crazy leaps along the empty beach, too much barbed wire, but with sobriety and restraint in this valley here. There's a concrete dance floor, an orchestra, lots of other people, and apparently dancing goes on every Saturday night. I never knew this place existed till this evening when I came out exploring. When I arrived here, the sun was already low. I came and sat down at this table, shaded by the gnarled old tree behind me. I've watched the couples waltzing, mostly civilians, but a few young soldiers in battle dress. 
I noticed an army captain sitting nearby, looking so miserable that I invited him over for a drink. I longed to give him some of my joy, but I knew I mustn't speak about myself. I tried to get him to talk. He made a few remarks, highly uncomplimentary, about the local beer and the local women. Then we sat in uncomfortable silence. When the air raid warning screamed about half an hour ago, he left at once. In sad relief at his departure, I leaned back in this chair and watched formations of enemy bombers crossing the turquoise sky. Then I grew bored. Dancing was the only answer, and this is what I've been doing. The English girls looked such a sulky lot with their pouting lips that I've chosen a Maltese girl. After waltzing merrily, we've settled back at my table. Of course, I'm drawing her. Bianca is a splendid model, keeping wonderfully still, and she's smiling back at me with her great brown eyes. She's about 18, with dark, sun-bleached hair piled high on her forehead. She's probably wondering what my life is like, for I'm the first pilot she's met. I'm certainly wondering about her. Her smile, so mischievous and gay, is unusually strange, defying all my efforts to capture it in a pen drawing. I think I know what it is. Those great brown eyes are watching me from under eyelids that have paid the price of our Malta battle. She's young, but her eyelids are heavily wrinkled and burdened with strain. My fountain pen, with its hard lines, is wretchedly inadequate. I need oil paints to formulate this drawing by more tender colouring. I should show both her youth and her premature age in the same portrait. I've made an awful mess of this picture, but it's not the pen's fault. I'm not skilled enough. I want desperately to be able to continue my life as an artist. Everything is so beautiful here that I'm tempted to cry out. The sun has dropped behind the flat-roofed houses, and such a tenderly coloured shadow has engulfed this narrow valley with its orchestra and moving dancers. Renoir pales beside this reality. I want to paint. I would be utterly content to live in the humblest home in Malta, in squalor and filth if necessary, if only I had a real chance to paint, to paint all the time and all my life. In gathering darkness we are walking back up the hill, for Bianca lives just beyond the mess. The dusk bombing has started. As the guns roar out their salvos, the black shapes of the houses either side of us flicker on and off to dazzling yellow cubes. Much later now in my bedroom, in fact the results of today's fighting have already come through. Twenty enemy planes have been destroyed or damaged during daylight, while during the dusk raid three of the 21 enemy bombers that came over were shot down into the sea. The troubles of the others were by no means over because the Y service intercepted a despairing enemy broadcast from Catania in Sicily. No more bombers are to land here tonight. Four have crashed on the aerodrome already. A wonderful day. And once again I am reading through Diana's letters. Her last one was only written a few days ago. I share her astonishment that government ministers are making party broadcasts over the BBC. England must be as stirred up as everyone here by the latest war news. The news that a thousand RAF night bombers have twice flown out to bomb Germany has triggered off the most violent optimism. Although I cannot but think of the terrible suffering that has now started to be unleashed on the women and children of Germany, the news is indeed like a pair of field glasses lifted suddenly to our eyes. The end of the war, which has been too remote to think about, let alone talk about, has jumped into vivid focus ahead of us. Everyone is filled with a sense of responsibility for what will happen after final victory. In the last three days, I too have heard views about post-war socialist and conservative governments, about the need for equality of opportunity, about education as the key to the future. In fact, in the tent yesterday, Pancho got so carried away that he gave us a 30-minute impromptu lecture about education in the Argentine. People talk about morals and religion and of the need for a new leader in spiritual matters, a leader with both enlightenment and authority. But perhaps the most speculative subject concerns what must be done with Germany after the war. Some pilots have suggested exterminating the Germans so that their militarism can never rise again. Others believe that splitting Germany up into smaller states will solve the problem, while one of the wing commander controllers 
lying on his tummy beside Pancho, stated that the Allies should occupy Germany for three generations until a rising youth, untainted by the Nazi evil, can emerge in a fit state to govern themselves. I have stood on the edge of such discussions, listening. I am astonished that men, who have been undivided for seven terrible weeks in the thick of battle here, can argue with so much heat. With all the present discussion, both here in the mess and down at Lucca, it's strange to remember that seven weeks ago, when we first came to Malta, the war was continuous withdrawal, continuous defeat. We were thinking in terms of a black tunnel of war, an endless tunnel without light of any kind. We were fighting for our very existence. Having at last related myself to such a battle, the whole complexion of the war has suddenly changed. All over the world, the enemy advance has been stemmed. In the Far East, the Japanese flood tide has withdrawn from Ceylon and seems to be contained in Burma and the Pacific. In Russia, both sides appear exhausted by their terrible struggles, while even closer to us, just a few hundred miles away from here, in the battle that is waging at Knightsbridge in Libya, we seem, at last, to be matching Rommel's strength by our own strength. The change and the new optimism has been so sudden. Hopes and thoughts of returning to my wife to live for the first time as an artist have made such a golden impact on my mind that I feel poised between two worlds. Hope for the future is unreal, yet gloriously real. This is undoubtedly the turning point of the war. There is one black fact. Peace is not here yet. We must go on fighting. This siege of Malta is a relic of the first phase of the war, a phase of enemy advance, of pockets of allied resistance being left isolated and alone far behind the front line. So were our other contemporary sieges of Corregidor and Sevastopol. We have been exchanging wireless messages with Sevastopol and its fall is imminent. Corregidor has alas fallen. Malta will almost certainly fall if we do not succeed with our convoy. That's it for today. We'll be heading back to the heat of Malta soon. If you're enjoying this audiobook, you might be interested to know that we have nine free audiobooks on our members' site. It's £6 a month to join, or $7.50 in the US, but for that you get a weekly live show, lots of discussions with like-minded people, and all those free audiobooks. You can join by going to patreon.com slash wehaveways. That's patreon, spelt P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com slash wehaveways. More of One Man's Window, coming soon.